to promise me that you're not going to bring up every five minutes that Sarah Brightman is better than Emmy Rossman, okay? I can't make you that promise. Like, we all know it, bud. You don't have to keep like, reminding us. You know that I can't make you that promise. <laughs> you know that I'm here mostly to talk about Sarah Brightman. <laughs> She's not like, in I, this movie! I know we're covering the film. <laughs> it's just, Sarah Brightman is everything. Back to gigging and streaming, where the casting's made up and the vocals don't matter. I'm Carrie. I'm Ross. And this week we are covering the 2004 musical movie adaptation, The Phantom of the Opera. The Phantom de l'Opera. <laughs> Guys, we're doing a musical this week. Guys, you know, you know what I re-listened to today? <laughs> what? Grease 2. Oh my god! I did, I wanted to get hype. Like, you know, guys, we really do shine our brightest when we do our musicals. Our theater nerd is showing. Yes. Guys, and today we are covering the film adaptation of literally the greatest musical of all time. When I say greatest, some would beg to differ. But like, in terms of the success, the artistry, the music, guys, how can you not say it's not the greatest musical of all time? It's still technically in its very first run on Broadway. Oh, I know. After oh, I like know. 35 years or something? They've been at the Majestic Theater on Broadway since 1987. Holy Mary, mother of mercy. Before we get started, don't forget, go follow us on Twitter at Kick and Stream. K-I-C-K-N-S-T-R-E-A-M. You can write the show at Kicking and Streaming Podcast at gmail.com. That's with an and, not an amper. And don't forget, folks, be practicing the three R's. Rate, review, retweet. Rate, review, retweet. We want everyone to be able to join this watch party. Again, you're just going to yap about Sarah Brightman this whole time. Guys, well, I get it. She was too old when they made the film, but like... <gasps> <laughs> Not my Christine. <laughs> you're right. Nothing but respect for my Christine, Sarah Brightman. Nineteen years after its London premiere, Andrew Lloyd Webber's Phantom of the Opera remains one of the world's most popular stage musicals. Webber's vision continues its journey from stage to screen and now to home entertainment. The film, directed by Joel Schumacher, would earn Emmy Rossum a Breakthrough Performance Award from the National Board of Review and garner three nominations for both the Golden Globe and Academy Awards. Now a look at the latest adaptation of The Phantom of the Opera. Let's talk a little bit about Le Phantom de l'Opera. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about our source material. So, Gaston Leroux, he looks like, you know, I feel like I kind of look like him. <laughs> oh, no. Like, if I, I'm sorry, I'm showing her a picture of the, of the writer. <laughs> like, that could be me. Yeah, it could be you. Like, back in France in 19-whatever-the-hell. Think you could have had a glass of brandy together? Probably. Probably. I was always under the impression that this was a Victor Hugo novel for some reason. It, do, it does smack, it is smacks of Victor Hugo, doesn't it? A little bit. But Gaston Leroux, <laughs> sorry. Apologies to our listeners in France. We're, we're not doing that. <laughs> 
Phantom of the Opera is Gaston LaRue's biggest work. It's his the thing he's most known for, at least. It was adapted into the very famous 1925 silent film starring Lon Chaney. Oh my god, I know that's way before all of our time, but guys, Lon Chaney. I know. He was like a cinematic master of horror makeup in those days. He was a writer, director, actor, choreographer, like he did it all. Like in this story, we always like make a big deal about him being unmasked at the end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of the story and like everybody freaks out at the end of this movie when he's unmasked but guys Lon Chaney's way scarier like people when this film first came out not this film but the 1925 version people were said to faint scream and vomit when oh he was God. unmasked oh no like guys look it up Lon Chaney fan of the opera 1925 is spooky it's pure nightmare fuel obviously what we're covering today is an adaptation of the 1986 Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. It's an adaptation of an adaptation. It is. <laughs> we love that. In 1986, Andrew Lloyd Webber got really in his feels and said, oh my God, I love writing music. <laughs> you know who else likes writing music? Eric from The Phantom of the Opera. Right. I honestly think Andrew Lloyd Webber kind of had to embody the Phantom in order to write this score. I mean, like, really put yourself there, right? Exactly. Like the Heath Ledger methodology. Like David McCullough, author of John Adams Says, you really gotta marinate your head. Oh, man. You gotta marinate your head in the time and in the characters. So he didn't do it alone. Lyricists uh, Roger Stiglow and Charles Hart also helped him write the score. It first premiered at Her Majesty's Theatre in London in 1986, and then in 1987, they brought the original cast over to Broadway to make it a smash hit in America. Because nothing's famous until it's in America. Wah, wah, wah. I know, right? We have both seen it live on stage. Yes, we have, and what a privilege. Yeah, I know, right? What a privilege. We did not see it at the same time. We saw it at different theaters in different states, actually. Exactly. And I saw it at IRT in Indianapolis, and I had shitty seats. Oh, I'm sorry. When I tell you that I missed a good 20% of this show because the mezzanine blocked my view, like, holy moly. We went up to Lansing to see it and we had really good seats. We were in like the very front of the mezzanine. Oh, so so you didn't miss a detail. I didn't miss a damn thing. It was great. Now, granted, in the middle of act two, I was a little, you know, checking the watch that I don't have on. (laughs) And I'm like, is this, uh, is this over yet? Is this wrapping up? Like... (laughs) So Joel Schumacher directs, and Joel Schumacher has also done uh, St. Elmo's Fire. Oh, I love that stupid movie. And uh, he replaced Tim Burton to direct the Batman franchise. Oh, is that who we have to thank for Batman? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) He also did work on House of Cards. Oh, well, there you go. Thanks, Joel. Um, Guys, Fan of the Opera is the longest running Broadway show of all time. Yeah. 33 years in the same theater in its original run. Like... I just, that should give you an idea of the enduring legacy of this show. I think that's why the talent that we have in this movie kind of peeves you off a little bit. Like, I'll say it again later, but you can either have really great production or really great talent. You can't have both. (laughs) You just cannot have both. Yeah, I know. So. Speaking of the talent. (laughs) Guys, (laughs) I don't get it. (laughs) I just don't get it. I'll never get it. Michael Crawford and Sarah Brightman were perfect to be the Phantom and Christine. Just absolutely perfect. Were they the original Phantom and Christine? Yes, they were. On the West End and on Broadway. 
I know. So good we had to bring him across the pie. <laughs> and guys, Sarah Brightman has been with us before. Of course, she's not with us today. But she was Blind Mag when we did Repo the Genetic Opera. I love it. Guys, she's my favorite soprano. Remember how I said he was going to talk about Sarah Brightman all day? How about you talk about the Christine that I wanted you to talk about? All right. So, <laughs> as Christine Daae, the longest-running musical theater lead, we have... Emmy Rossum? Yeah, most of you probably don't even know who she is by name. Like, the other, her other biggest claim to fame in pop culture is as the star of Shameless. She's Fiona Gallagher, guys. You don't get to abandon your kids and then show up one day to take your pick of the litter. This is about you. This is about what you didn't do. This is about what I did. And you know what? I did a fucking great job. I cannot even make the connection between this little ballet opera singer and this bad bitch from the south side of Chicago who takes care of her dysfunction junction family. Like, Emmy Rossum, she, this same year, she was in uh, The Day After Tomorrow. Oh, yeah. The movie about all the crazy weather. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When, when weather attacks. She she played opposite Jake Gyllenhaal. She, this is the beginning of her career. She's 17 years old. I know. And how she just, I was like, how does she not age between 2004 and 2011? 11 from going to be Christine Daae to Fiona Gallagher, and it's because she was 17 years old at the time. I don't know how she does it, but she does. She's also a recording artist. She has a couple of albums, but like, here's the thing. When I watch Shameless and I see the everything that is Fiona Gallagher, I just don't see a seasoned singer. And I guess know. what? You won't see it either if you watch <laughs> Phantom of the Opera in 2004. Oh, the shade of it all. So... <laughs> In the title role, <laughs> we have Jerry Butler. Stop it. That's not his name. Guys, Gerard Butler is here. Guys, the star of PSI Love You 300. Tomorrow Never Dies. Tomorrow Never Dies. Dracula 2000. <laughs> his singing is not fantastic. Yeah, he's the Russell Crowe. Yes. Oh, no. Yes, he is. He sounds like a carp getting a blowjob. He's one of the weakest links in this cast. You are the weakest link. Goodbye. But you know, I don't care. He's so beautiful. But I'm going to have things to say about that. It, uh, no, I know. He's not supposed to be beautiful. No, believe me. The, the inherent toxicity I have about this character is so rampant. But you're right. We'll get back to that. We have, in his second kicking and streaming appearance, Mr. Patrick Wilson. Yes. Remember, uh... During Halloween last year, he was in Insidious. Yes. And uh, he's also... Uh, in my dreams. He is in our dreams. He's so beautiful. <laughs> His singing is a lot better <laughs> than Gerard yeah, Butler's. Yeah, Patrick Wilson can actually sing. I think he was a good choice for Raoul. And he looks fine in that wig, I'm just saying. We have, in her second kicking and streaming appearance, Miss Miranda Richardson. What have we done with her in it before? This will take Tweedy's farm out of the dark ages and into full-scale automated production. <laughs> Militia Tweedy will be poor no longer. Oh my god, she's Mrs. Tweedy in Chicken Run! Yes, yeah, she is! Oh my god! You also know Miranda Richardson as Rita Skeeter in yes. the Harry Potter series. She's also in the very bad Tim Burton adaptation of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. <laughs> I can't wait to cover that mess. She plays the villain that was never a part of the story. <laughs> <laughs> I love Miranda Richardson. She's also the only one that's French. No, yeah, you were saying that to me off mic. Like, why is no one French like, in this movie that takes place in France? Like, most of these characters are French. It takes place in Paris. Why is she the only one that has a French <laughs> accent? Anyway. 
Okay. Big Lasai. Big Lasai. Why is she here? I don't fucking know. <laughs> but she's here and we're gonna have to deal with it. No, you're not talking about Minnie Driver. As as famed soprano Carlotta Giudicelli, we have Minnie Driver? Listen, I get it, man. She has that bold Italian look. She does a pretty decent accent. She actually is a pretty good singer, but she is, for some reason, the only performer. She's the only performer that's dubbed by a professional opera singer. I mean, I guess Carlotta's just too important. You know Minnie Driver from things like Goodwill Hunting. Um, she was, I love her stint on Will and Grace. What? Where would who? She stands second wife. That's right! Karen and Stan get divorced, and then <laughs> she comes on as the second. L- uh, Lorraine, I think, is her name. She's also the voice of Jane in Tarzan. Yes, she is. <laughs> and I always forget that Minnie Driver is British. I know. <laughs> we have Simon Callow and Kieran Hines as Fearman and Andre. You know Simon Callow from British television. Yeah, no. He's just a, he's like a really good B actor. You know what I'm talking he's about? He's done Doctor Who, Angels in America, Midsummer Murders. If you've seen Amadeus, he is uh, Tom Hulse's like artist friend who like makes the joke operas. And Kieran Hines, you know from stuff like Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, where he's Aberforth Dumbledore. Um, he's, of course, um, in one of my favorite television shows, Political Animals, as President Donald Hammond. I knew you weren't going to not bring up Political Animals today. Come on, it's Karen Hines. It's <laughs> Like, come on, it's great. He's also in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. You know, I honestly don't think anyone else is really worth mentioning. That's fine, because we have a lot of plot to get ahead yeah, of. we have a lot of things to do. We're going to be here for a second. Curtain going up. Curtain going up. Remember to keep your hand at the level of your eyes. We transition from a postcard depicting the Opera Populaire in Paris, 1919, to a spectacularly edited old black and white film reel sequence. We've got like this old sepia film filter on everything. We're trying to make it look like really old where people are moving really fast. It's so beautifully done. All of the cinematography and the production design is perfect. It's to the T. Like I said, you can have really great production or really great talent. You can't have both. <laughs> you can't afford both. It was the same with Grease too. <laughs> really great production, but the talent was just not there. The old opera house is the definition of desolation. Oh yeah, no, it's busted inside. You can tell something happened there. Everything is covered in sheets and cobwebs. There's even pigeons living inside. It's the definition of defunct. We have this auctioneer. So there's this bidding war going on over this tacky music box shaped like a barrel organ. And it's got a monkey in Persian robes on top, and the music box is in the shape of a barrel organ. It is the definition of an imperialist relic. Yeah, very very much so. Very much so. This elderly man outbids this very well-to-do looking woman, who we learn her name is Madame Giri. (laughs) She doesn't want to pay more than 30 francs for it. No, he outbids her for 35 francs for the music box. And then we get lot 666, a chandelier in pieces. Who buying a chandelier in pieces? Well, because you can dismantle it. You can dismantle it and break it down. Like, this is the famous chandelier from the show. Like, it's made of Swarovski crystal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it had like a... I love how the chandelier had a stunt double. (laughs) like they had a real chandelier that they used for like the big shots and then the one with the action sequences they used a fake one i love in the stage show like you guys if you've ever seen it live you know in the beginning you know when the overture comes and the chandelier lights up i just love the stagecraft in this 
set piece being able to put itself together. Yeah, like it starts off on stage in a couple of pieces, uh-huh. and then they kind of do it the same way in the movie. The auctioneer says, We're told, ladies and gentlemen, that this is the very chandelier which figures in the famous disaster. Our workshops have repaired it and wired parts of it for the new electric light. Perhaps we can frighten away the ghost of so many years ago with a little illumination. Gentlemen. chandelier puts itself back together and lights up and starts raising like in the show i saw it swung out over the audience Mm -hmm. and up into the mezzanine that's what it does oh it was frightening i screamed the reveal of the chandelier gets me every time oh full body goosebumps also the sound is not mixed well on this film (laughs) like you can't hear any of the dialogue so you have to turn it up and then when the soundtrack comes on it's like blaring and you have to turn it back down until the dialogue starts again and of guys this this overture is it's iconic it's so late 80s oh just the organ and the way like if you see it live it reverberates in your rib cage exactly oh it's just oh it's i fantastic. love an orchestra i can feel in my chest <laughs> we enter this beautiful transition of moving backwards in time These cobwebs and all the decay of so many years are just wafting away with the winds of time and the color and gold finishing of the theater is just restoring. We land in Paris, 1870, in the sunshine and heyday of the Opera Populaire. We have a couple of characters we should probably talk about here at the top as we're getting introduced to the Opera House. First and foremost, I want to talk about the Regal, the has no time for your shit, Madame Giry, yes, played by Miranda Richardson. She's the lead ballet instructor. Absolutely. She's the one who teaches the dancers and looks after them. She's kind of like the house mother of the whole opera house. She has lived here her entire life. Yeah, like ever since she was old enough to dance. Exactly. She's been here. Like her mother lived there <laughs> and performed there. It's a family thing. I bet her mother's mother lived there and performed there. She has a daughter, Meg Giry, who is just a pretty blonde thing. She looks exactly like her. Nepotism. Yeah, nepotism (laughs) like she's the old lady we saw at the auction house at the beginning yes but now she's very youthful she's probably like 18 19 years old i love her so much we see the inner workings of the company at the opera house all of the glory of theatrical production and a time forgotten we have carlotta giudicelli she is the opera populaire's diva lead soprano. She's actually, in the story, a very famous Spanish soprano. Ooh. She's kind of Italian in this version, isn't she? she well, she, in the story, she marries an Italian man. And oh. that's why her last name is Giudicelli. She is rehearsing with Ubaldo Piangi, who is a very famous Italian tenor. And they are putting on a production of Shalamo's Hannibal, about it- the guy that led the elephants over the Pyrenees. <laughs> It's fake, right? This is not a real show. No, they made up Hannibal for the show. Rehearsal is interrupted by theater owner Monsieur Lefebvre. He's getting ready to retire and sell the Opera Populaire to a couple of junk salesmen. It is my pleasure to introduce you to the two gentlemen who now own the Opera Populaire. Monsieur Richard Fermin and Monsieur Gilles André. I'm sure you've read of their recent fortune amassed in the junk business. Scrap metal. 
actually. In case you missed it with the accents, that's Richard Furman and Gilet Andre. Yeah. <laughs> that's our Midwestern pronunciation. Gilet. It's like a fancy way to say Giles. <laughs> Gilet Andre. It's Richard. <laughs> like, I'm not dissing you, France. I'm not dissing your pronunciation. I just don't French. <laughs> Um, he announces his retirement to the entire company, as well as the sale of the Opera House, as well as the welcome of their newest patron, the Vicomte de Chagny. Patrick Wilson is here, everybody. Raul, yummy. He is just, he is beautiful, he is rich, and he is here to throw some money at the arts. We have Emmy Rossum as Christine Daye. Oh yeah, she makes her entrance alongside Meg. She sets eyes on Raul, and oh, she is transfixed. Because they, they used to know each other. Yeah, they used to know each other as kids. It's Raul. Before my father died. At the house by the sea. I guess you could say we were childhood sweethearts. He called me little Lottie. Christine, he's so handsome. My parents and I are honored to support all the arts, especially the world-renowned Opera Populaire. Madame Giri is <laughs> taking Fairman and Andre around the company. They're watching everybody rehearse. And then Carlotta, for seemingly no reason whatsoever, starts the emotional extortion right away. Immediately, she's threatening not to go on. Like, she is such a diva. She is the definition. She has a literal meltdown. And so this meltdown is for, like, no real reason at all. You can tell everyone is expecting this. Like, oh, time for the 11 a.m. meltdown. Everybody take a smoke break. Isn't there a rather marvelous aria for Elisa in Act 3 of Hannibal? <laughs> Perhaps the Signora... Yes, 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 Mano. Because I have not my costume for Act 3. Because somebody not finish it. And I ate my act. Oh my God, Carlotta. <laughs> Take it down, please. We're all working towards the same goal. They finally get her to stop the fake crying by insisting she sing them the aria from Act 3, which is called Think of Me. You know who I am in this? Who are you? I am Monsieur Rayer. <laughs> Tell me. He's the, uh, he's the conductor, right? Yes, he is. Why the, are you he? This queen, Francois Rayer, <laughs> that they've inserted into the plot he's actually francois rayer is actually a very famous french composer oh that's funny and so they kind of stuck him in there for i don't know history <laughs> like I don't, he's not in the book he's not in the original film anyway like, why are you him because he's just so done with carlotta <laughs> he just wants to run a good rehearsal and he can't because of her exactly she starts singing and i mean she's fine she has too much vibrato, you know what I mean? The thespians plugging their ears with cotton in order not to hear her annoying singing. Furman is checking his pocket watch! Like, she's so over the top. When you find that once again you long to take your <laughs> We have some rigging fail um, up top. And uh, it almost basically kills Carlotta. Yeah, we just see this black gloved hand loosen this rope. And then like this beam like falls on top of her. And then Meg, he's here. The Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> oh, they said it. They said it. They said it. They said uh, the title of the movie in the movie. Apparently this happens a lot. Like the opera ghost, as they call him, is always trying to kill Carlotta while she's rehearsing. <laughs> Not my soprano. <laughs> Not my soprano. <laughs> 
We see a spooky letter flutter down to Madame Giri. She picks it up, brings it over to Furman and Andre, like a welcome note from the opera ghost. He welcomes you to his opera house. His opera house. And commands that you continue to leave box five empty for his use and reminds you that his salary is due. His salary? Monsieur Lefebvre used to give him 20,000 francs a month. Which, guys, there's a website to do this kind of math, and I did it. Once you convert a franc from the Swedish franc in 1870 to a U.S. dollar in 2015, we go from 20,000 francs, that is $100,000 U.S. roughly. What the hell? He gets $100,000 a month as a salary. Well, Fairman says they're going to have to cancel, because Carlotta stormed out, and... Jiri immediately suggests Christine. She's been waiting for this opportunity for a minute. You think Daye could sing it, sir? <laughs> I love her accent. A full house, Andre. We shall have to refund a full house. Christine Daye could sing it, sir. What a course girl? That'd be silly. She has been taking lessons from a great teacher. This leads us into Think of Me, because Christine, you know, she's unassuming. She she doesn't want to fill those shoes. Okay, Christine, learn a whole operatic soprano role by tonight, please. <laughs> she gets up there and she starts singing. And if you did choir in high school, you've heard this song. At first, her voice is very attractive. It is. It's, it's very angelic, very gentle. She doesn't have the punching vibrato. Like when I watched it this time, when she opened her mouth and started to sing, and went... Fiona? <laughs> I know, it's like, this is the person from Shameless. Yeah, this is the same person who was fucking Lady Gaga's boyfriend on screen in the middle of a bunch of toys and poopy diapers in the back of a minivan. <laughs> but her tone is so beautiful and she's very full-throated. Then you find that once again you long to take your heart back and be free if you ever transition into her stunning onstage performance that night. She's literally glowing. Like the famous white ball gown with the crystal stars in her curled hair. Oh my god, I'm I'm in love with her, frankly. She does fantastically. It's the best success opera populaire has had in years. And like Raoul is up in his luxury box watching this happen and he can't believe his eyes. It's his long-lost friend, little Lottie. Like, Patrick Wilson. Mm. Like, his singing is so-so, but I, <laughs> he does pretty good. I know. <laughs> this is where I wrote, why is hardly anyone French? Long ago, it seems so long ago, how young and innocent we were. She may not remember me, but I so the performance goes off without a hit. Now it's a party. I love a theater party. I know, right? <laughs> the show is over. The curtain is down. We've cleaned up. Let's get wasted. The only person out at the party is the star. Meg, Madame Giry's daughter, is looking around for Christine. They're besties. Yeah, they're besties. She, like, I think Christine's in the chapel. Lighting She's in the bowel chapel, as <laughs> I'm referring to it. She's lighting a candle for her father. Because everyone in France is Catholic. This takes us into Angel of Music. 
Yeah, because Meg comes to find her lighting a candle. She's congratulating her on a job well done. She's like, oh, girl, (laughs) that was fantastic. She wants to know, who is this fabulous tutor who's been giving you these voice lessons? In the book, Meg is literally like, bitch, they're talking about taking you to Rome. (laughs) (laughs) Fess up, spill the tea. And Christine tells her that before her father died, right after they came to the opera house, he told her that she would always be protected by this angel of music. It's like she thought it was going to be his spirit watching over her, right? Yeah. And then shortly after his death, when she would come down to the catacombs to pray, she starts hearing this voice. And she goes, oh, shit, there's that ghost dad talked about. Yeah. And so since she was a small child, this disembodied voice that lives in the walls of the opera house has been giving her voice lessons. God, I love this score so much. Like, this really is... If Andrew Lloyd Webber has a magnum opus... It's definitely the Phantom of the Opera. It's definitely Phantom. how meg's like don't worry it's she's like because like christine's like listen i've had this my whole life and now i've had this big debut and now it's probably only going to get worse and meg's like it's 1870 don't worry about those voices in your head (laughs) oh no it's like they're trying to play ouija with this shit i know madame giri tells christine that the opera ghost is very pleased with her madame giri knows about the opera ghost madame giri is kind of like the liaison for the phantom i know like madame giri's always in like corners at the end of scenes just like looking like concerned like let (laughs) she's watching him do bad things exactly madame giri she knows she can't control him i guess anyway raul goes to christine's dressing room to see her after the performance she's literally surrounded by roses we're talking 50 dozen pink roses he lets himself in to her room yeah doesn't knock or anything just lets himself in and from the moment they set eyes on each other it's like you see 10 years of friendship cropping up all at once raul's like oh my god it's so great to see you i can't believe it i'm gonna take you to dinner oh he's delighted and christine's like no 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 (laughs) the ghost of the angel of music is very strict like she's gonna get she's gonna get in trouble with with the walls for staying out too long she's like i can't come to the party i can't go out tonight i've got to rest up we've got more hannibal to do yeah you know and he's like he just like brushes it off (laughs) he's not afraid of no ghost and he just like leaves and he's like i'm gonna bring my carriage around 10 minutes be ready and then he leaves and then just the shot of the gloved hand locking the door. We're in a horror movie all of a sudden. And he pulls the key away and there's Madame Giri. Like, okay, I guess we're doing this. Christine's getting undressed. She's in this fabulous white negligee. Like, I would just die to have this. And like, all the candles start going out on their own. The darkness just creeps in. Oh, it's not cool. Uh-oh, here comes Auto-Tune Jerry. There's this gigantic ornate mirror on the wall of the room, right? It's yeah. like full length. And she just starts hearing the angel of music speak to her love this 
this moment, just not Gerard Butler. I know, I know. This is also a favorite moment of mine because the mirror just, the glass disappears and there's Gerard Butler. Flattering child, you shall know me. See why in shadow I hide. Look at your face in the mirror. I am there inside. It's like she just took a dab. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like she's suddenly in the middle of a fever dream. Like she's just elated. There's this spell that the ghost, the phantom, has over her. Like he's just there on the other side of that mirror. And here's what you realize. He's always been able to see through that mirror. Yep. Always. Because there's an entrance on the other side of that mirror. It's one-way glass, right? Is that Mm. what it's called? Yep. That glass just slides back, and he's offering her his hand. Come to me, angel of music. Raul has come back to get her, (laughs) and is trying the door, and it won't open. And he's like, wait a minute. Are you in there with another man? (laughs) Who is that? She is transformed. Fixed. It's like he's hypnotizing her. And then just, we take the hand and... Here we go, down into the bowels of an opera house with a strange man wearing a mask that only covers half of his face. Guys, this is the song. Yeah, I mean, come on. Like, the most famous piece for organ ever written. Like, Sarah Brightman and Michael Crawford did a rock version of this in 1988. (laughs) Like, on the radio. It was on the radio. (laughs) That's amazing! Oh my god! If you look it up on YouTube, just look up Fan of the Opera Vivo. There's a whole music video they made for it. It's great. Like, this part, like, He's just dragging her down into the bowels of the opera house to his lair, These right? Are basically the Parisian catacombs. Yeah, just it, it's the real big catacomb vibes. And like this is the part of the stage show where I had seats that were so far back under the mezzanine. Uh-huh. And the actors in this production entered the scene from the top of the catwalk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and it took them half the song to actually come into view. To get down on the stage. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Down this really long circular staircase. I love it. I just like I was just like this sounds really pretty. I wish I could see it. They get into this little boat that's very iconic in the stage production. Yeah. All I'm saying is don't fall out of that boat. No, yeah. That water is poopy. <laughs> we are in a literal sewer. Oh no. It must fucking smell. Is he like a basilisk? Does he get around by the pipes? Maybe. I need to know how he gets around this opera house unseen all the time. Also, the guitar riffs aren't going to mask how much you're not Sarah Brightman. <laughs> Listen, you need to be nice to Emmy Rossum here because Sarah Brightman is wonderful, but you have to admit that Christine's high notes in this song are freakish. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. What? I don't like this version of it. (laughs) Would you do me a favor and rip the original version and play it for our listeners? Or do a comparison. I don't care. How about if I go from the movie track into the original track? Oh, 
this brings us into the music of the night sequence. Yeah, this is where we get a better idea of Gerard Butler's general ability. He's brought her down to his spooky lair. This song is basically a long plea for her to abandon her life on the surface and live down in the sewer with him. This is where I would like to talk about this, okay? Okay. Let me go off for a minute. All right. The Phantom is meant to be mysterious and scary and kooky and garish not hot and auto-tuned. Oh my god. You think that Gerard Butler is all flash and no substance. Well, the thing, the, the whole point of the Phantom being masked is because he's deformed. Not hot. Like, only in this version, only half of Jerry's fucking face is deformed. Hey, they had to pay a lot for that face. And, like, the rest of him is just rippling hot. <laughs> like, I'm, like, I'm not mad that I get to look at him for two and a half hours, but... No, there is so much. Listen, this character is toxic. He feels entitled. Oh, I know. To Christine. Like, he heard her sing and was like, wow, I'm going to decide your whole life path. Well, like, just like a man. He's like, well, I made her. I might as well have her, right? Let the dream begin. Let your dark side give in to the power of the music that I want. The power of. Yeah, like, this song is meant to be an earfuck, and it's just auto-tune. Anyways, this is kidnapping. <laughs> it is kidnapping! <laughs> because remember what I said, he's, like, showing her around the crib, right? Mm-hmm. He also has a mannequin that looks exactly like Christine! I love when she sees that. She just, she's out. She, she, she passes out. She faints from fright! She's like, oh god, it me, and then falls on the floor. <laughs> So he just, like, picks her up, puts her in bed. And is like, okay, I'm going to write some music now. Can, can we kind of skim over the magic lasso part? Yeah. So Joe Bouquet is a character from the book who he actually dies at the very beginning of the book. As opposed to, like, the middle? He's the first incident with the Phantom. Granted, that'll happen a little bit later in the movie. Spoiler. Yeah, but Joseph Bouquet is, like, in the girls' dressing room, and he's, like, playing around with all of them, and he's drunk, and he's like, you need to watch out for the opera ghost in his... Magic lasso. It's like it's like he's telling them ghost stories so the the pretty ladies will be close to him. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he's like he's just some dick stagehand who is just terrifying all the ballet dancers. And Madame Jiggery walks in and is like, "No, get out, get out, get out. <laughs> just put a pin in Joseph Bouquet. We'll come back to him in a minute." Joseph Bouquet, hold your tongue. <laughs> Keep your hand at the level of your eyes. Um. So Christine wakes up in the Phantom's lair and she goes out. He's at the organ. And, like, she, I, I don't know, what, where do you think her head is right now? She's like, okay, I, it, the, the song is called I Remember. Uh-huh. And she, it's, it's, I feel like it's almost like she's in this state of, this was a dream. Am I still in the dream? She's always believed that this voice belonged to the ghost of her deceased father. Exactly. So what she decides she's going to do, is it's almost like pinching yourself to see if you're asleep. She's yeah. like, I'll unmask him. Maybe I'll wake up. <laughs> this is not what happens. She basically leans down and peels that mask off of his face, but we don't get to see it. He covers it immediately and he's like, Damn you, you little blind Pandora. This is what you wanted to see. Curse you! You little lying Delilah! 
You little viper! Now you cannot ever be free! He goes off on her for a couple of bars. This is the part in the 1925 silent version that's so iconic. The shot of Mary Philbin unmasking Long Chaney. The one where everyone vomits and screams and faints. Is that first one. Yeah. Ooh. You know, she and and he's so upset. He's like, no, no, I'm sensitive about that. Oh, no. (laughs) She yells at her until finally she's like, okay, geez, here's her mask back. He goes, now you cannot ever be free. What the fuck is this? (laughs) Kidnap. Damn you for a kidnapping pimp. It's at this point in the book. That he decides he's going to keep her permanently. Oh, Jesus. Because now she's seen him. But, like, doesn't he eventually opt to let her go? Yes. Why? In the musical version, he lets her go back. But in the book, this is... He keeps her for three weeks. Holy cannoli! In the book, because he's afraid she's going to go back and send the cops after him or whatever. Okay, so everyone's in a tizzy. (laughs) Fairman and Andre are getting great coverage in the press, but they're also like, okay, so they lost Carlotta, and now their leading soprano, Christine Daae, is missing? (laughs) And they're like, what's going on over at the Opera Populaire? And they keep getting these notes from the Phantom, all about how he wants his shit run, how the theater's supposed to be run. Uh, Fairman and Andre are not the only ones getting notes. The Vicomte has also received a note from the Phantom. He's, he, I love it. This is that scene where everybody just comes in one after the other like, what the hell is this? This is the, it's your fault. So it's your fault. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Or whatever. <laughs> from Into the Woods. Yes. If you're a theater nerd, you know what I'm talking about. And you know who else has been getting notes? Carlotta! Exactly. Because Carlotta, in Christine's absence, is vying to get her place as top soprano back. Yeah. And like she, first of all, Mini driver's outfit in this scene oh, oh. is amazing. Oh. oh my god. It's first of all, the name of the game is pink. All her outfits are pink in this scene. Exactly. We start with that beautiful gown that has the dyed pink fox fur. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> oh my god. Ross, listen to me. The reason why I love movies like this from this period, the reason why I love Harlots, is I would look fabulous in these outfits. I know. You just want to try on all the clothes. I just want to try on all the clothes. Give me all the fancy hats and the fancy updos, please. And like Carlotta, the note to Carlotta is basically a threat saying, Christine is going to sing all your parts now, and if you try to take her place, I'm going to kill you. Madame Giri shows up to announce that Christine has been returned safely. Yeah, she's fine. And despite several warnings to cast Christine in Il Muto as the Countess and Carlotta as the silent page boy in efforts to insult Carlotta and elevate Christine, they decide to do the exact opposite of the (laughs) Phantom's demands and move on. And everyone's okay with the idea of Carlotta being gone, though. Like... Everyone in the company's like, God damn it, is this bitch really bad? <laughs> like, I wrote in my notes, this takes us into Prima Donna or Carlotta's room job. <laughs> <laughs> That's so graphic. It's what it is, though. Like- yes, this song is just Furman and Andre gassing her up. Prima Donna, first lady on the stage, your devotees are on their knees to This production design is absolutely flawless. I love this song. Like, I mean, you knew I loved this song, they, right? Yeah, they got everything right about this stage show to a T, except for the vocalists. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know how mad it makes you. I love the shot of them bringing down the dress. This pink? Her. Oh my 
my god, this pink dress that's so big and so intricate, it has its own frame. Exactly. They have to lower it onto her. I wrote in my notes, oh honey, that wig! I would look so amazing! <laughs> you break your neck wearing that thing. That was a common problem in those days. People would have like violent whiplash just from turning their head too sharply. I bet you were going to say violent wigs. No. <laughs> the wigs are violent. They cause severe neck injuries. I love at the very end of Prima Donna, right before they all belt the final note. Oh, that high note at the end is almost offensive. When they they stop right before and everyone takes a huge breath <laughs> and then does the last belt. skewer me between the ears. We've arrived at the premiere of Il Muto very quickly. Some might say in 0.2 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> the opera starts. Carlotta, we've seen Carlotta before, and this was something that uh, opera singers did a lot. I don't know what the fluid in this little bottle is. Singing oil. It's singing oil? Okay, that's what we're going to call it. It's a substance that opera singers would spray in the back of their throat to lubricate their vocal cords. It just looks like they're spraying perfume in their mouths. I know, and so that's what she does. Before she goes out on stage, she gets a little squirt. Ah, thank you, thank you, thank you. Where's my doggy? Where's my doggy? They star Il Muto. The choral work is great. Yes, it is. Like, uh, I, I'm loving these extras. I wrote, oh, to be a supernumerary in an opera. Absolutely. <laughs> um, They're getting into it. I'm, I kind of wanted. I kind of want to see Il Muto. <laughs> like it seems like an interesting story, you know. Obviously, Carlotta plays this countess, and there's this page boy that she's having an affair with, and Pianchi is her is the count. All that's going on out on stage, and backstage we see the Phantom switch out her little singing oil bottle. Yeah, we don't know what he's replaced it with, but we're gonna find out. The Phantom hardcore interrupts. Oh yeah, because not only are they defying his instructions to put Carlotta in a minor role, they have put Raul in box five. Did I not instruct that box five was to be kept empty? He's here. The Phantom of the Opera. It's him. Your part is silent, little toad. A toad, madam. Perhaps it is you. So, like, everybody in the show's like, uh, I don't really know what's going on. I love how we ignore that really stupid, scary moment (laughs) and just go on with the performance. Well, because the conductor was probably like, all right, everybody back from the coda, you know. Monsieur Rayer, will you shut up up there? (laughs) I'm trying to have a show (laughs) without any interruption. I'm trying to make us some goddamn money. So, Carlotta goes backstage. She sprays that stuff in her throat again to get ready to start back up. She goes back out on stage. She opens her mouth and fucks up. Oh my god, the noises! I ugly laugh. I know. I the like <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna lie. I kind of feel bad for her. Well, listen. She gets so upset. <laughs> She's embarrassed. And wouldn't you be? They, she sounds like a toad that's been caught in a wood chipper. She cries and screams and runs away. They stop the opera cold. Firman and Andre are like, everyone remain seated. 
We're going to go ahead and put on the ballet for you, and we're going to get started again in a few minutes with Christine Daae in the lead role, right? Right. <laughs> like Christine Daae, five, six, seven, eight. Has she practiced for this at all? Learn the whole thing right now, Christine. I'm sorry. It's like Fearman and Andre are like, oh, you were serious about that? Okay. Christine Daae is going to be playing the Countess. So they tell the conductor to push up the ballet, do it now. And this part always triggers my fight or flight response because no one backstage is ready. Yeah. And like they're pulling up the curtain and you still see people scattering left and right. (laughs) This is not good theater. It just takes me back to the theater days of running around like a chicken when your head caught off when something goes wrong. When the lights come up too early and the techies scatter. (laughs) Like roaches. Yes. So... So That was funny. It was. (laughs) So we get this whole sequence with Joseph Bouquet in the rigging running away from the Phantom. Yeah, like he's up there. He saw the Phantom being spooky up in the rafters. So he's like investigating. Bad idea. Mm -hmm. And the Phantom attacks him. Yeah. Like he pushes him to the end of the catwalk. Starts strangling him with the rope rig. And then he, it looks like a noose, right? He's tied it like a noose. Uh Slips it around his neck and trigger warning, Pushes him off the catwalk. Hangs his ass. Like, right in the middle of the ballet. Like, there's ballet dancers here, and, like, Joseph Bouquet's a couple of feet above them. I love the shot where he's hanging in there, still just spinning around under him. Like, they don't know yet. Yeah. People are screaming, and the ballet dancers (laughs) don't know why. Fairman and Andre are like, oh, god damn it. Can't catch a goddamn break in this town. Like, listen, it's not funny. He murdered somebody, but you're right. He's just, they just stand up and like, are you fucking kidding me? Nothing, absolutely nothing is going the way it's supposed to. They're like, everyone remains seated. It was an accident. It was just a silly accident. Finds, Raoul runs backstage and finds Christine and she's like, let's go to the roof. No one ever goes to the roof. She wants to like hardcore leave. Yeah. She wants to get her shit and leave because they're not safe and he he doesn't get it he's running after her to the roof like this is all a big joke right there is no phantom of the opera and he's like you're crazy and she's like listen dude there's obviously somebody in here (laughs) she figuratively grabs him by the shoulders and says linda listen you didn't see his messed up face i did don't tell me what i saw This takes us into All I Ask of You. Oh, guys, this is like my top three of this whole show. It's a personal favorite. It's a duet on the rooftop of the opera house between Raul and Christine. And the Phantom is listening to it happen, which is like my favorite part of the song. I wrote, all I ask of you is to please stop. (laughs) (laughs) Like, please stop being in love with him. Like, it's a pretty sequence, though. Like, Like, it's very romantic. And this movie's rendition of it is amazing. Putting them on the rooftop in the middle of the night, romantic lighting, and the magic of that light snowfall. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. I love it. Great editing. Just why why vocals? 
This is basically Raul saying to Christine, listen, listen, listen. This is all in your head, dude. Oh, no. Like, forget about this shit. I'm here. I got you. We're going to be together. And guess who's hiding behind a statue all butthurt? <laughs> like, if you were listening to this super romantic duet, wouldn't this just be the biggest kick in the nuts? Like, this is if this is basically a scenario in which I'm listening to Laura Linney tell Liam Neeson that he matters more to her than me. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm kidding. Patrick Wilson, I actually believe they are deeply in love. Can, 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 do you see it? Do I see what? The Beast and Belle. Like the Beast and Belle is, yes. Like the Beast, Prince and Belle. Like they would have been perfect in the live action remake of Beauty and the Beast. (laughs) They have the looks, they do. I think Emmy Rossum could actually sing that. Yeah, I do too. You know what I mean? See, but I, I really do love like the end of it when they're looking into each other's eyes Anywhere you go, let me go too. Mm. Oh, I love it so much. It's six months later. Yeah, like it's it's we get quite the time jump. Yeah. The phantom attacks have basically stopped. No one has seen him in a really long time. There's been no murders. We're <laughs> like <laughs> Thank God, some time without some murder. And like we are at a New Year's Eve masquerade at the Opera Populaire. Everybody is decked out in their ball eleganza. This is my favorite number. Oh, masquerade? Yeah. And as a matter of fact, color me shocked. I prefer the film version of Masquerade to the stage version. Usually when any Andrew Lloyd Webber project gets adapted into a film, they just remaster the shit out of the score. Right. And they really hit the nail on the head with Masquerade because they've changed the tempo and the time signature to make it... uh, Not only faster, but just more danceable. Right. You know what I mean? This is what I wrote. Masquerade, or let's forget what just happened. (laughs) (laughs) It's my fave number. For every reason you think, I wrote, let's get it, gays. Man and Andre are singing about how great everything is now. Yeah, because they're in the money now. <laughs> they're like, no murders, great publicity, all this money. They can afford to do this. Yeah, exactly. And you know, a, a masquerade. I want to go to. I want to go to an actual masquerade ball. I know. Well, we would be hits at a masquerade ball. I love all of these characters, right? That they've created for the masquerade. Like, like I, I wish we still had parties like this where you would get this level of dressed up. They're literally voguing. I know. <laughs> like, I, when I think about all of the time and preparation that went into getting dressed up for this, all of these costumes, I'm like, it's like we're going out to a drag club. This choreography is the best. Like, first we have that sequence where Raul and Christine are like, oh my God, we're engaged. Yeah, they've become engaged in, like, this, six, in this six month time gap. I'm, this is where the techies get involved. We've broken out the liquor. Everyone backstage is like, let's crash this posh-ass party. They're stealing the liquor from the party. (laughs) I love it. 
Raul and Christine look great. Like, and I just love the let's drink vibe. I love it when we get all my girls on the grand staircase. With the fan dancing at I the crescendo? I love how we're getting closer and closer to the camera. Masquerade! 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 <laughs> and then it just, I just, it's almost like powering down a machine. Like the, whoa! Yeah. Yeah. Let the spectacle astound you. <laughs> like the lights dim and the Phantom's theme starts going. This is a very iconic image from every single version of the Phantom of the Opera is the Phantom crashing the masquerade. Ding dong, the Phantom is here to bother. The famous illustration from Le Phantom de l'Opera is of the Phantom dressed as the Mask of the Red Death. Oh my God, like from Poe. Yeah, it's literally, it's that's what it's supposed to be. Oh shit. That's what he's drawing inspiration from is Poe. Because he's wearing like this bright red military dress and this mask, this white mask that makes his head look like a skull. Yep. He's basically like, surprise bitch, bet you thought you saw the last of me. <laughs> Why so silent, good monsieur? Did you think that I had left you for good? Have you missed me, good messieurs? I have written you an opera. Here I bring the finished score. Don Juan Triumphant! He basically threatens everybody to produce his new opera. That he's been working on for the last six months. That's why he hasn't been killing anybody, because he's been holed up in the catacombs writing a new opera. Inspired by the story of Don Juan. Which, like, guys, that is, like, old opera school. Like, if you've ever seen Don Giovanni, Don Giovanni is Italian for Don Juan. Mm. There are many iterations of Don Juan throughout opera and throughout art. They all differ a little bit. But basically, here are the broad strokes. We have a guy named Don Juan. He thinks he's God's gift to women. Like the Phantom. Yeah, like the Phantom. <laughs> he spends his whole life womanizing. And he never has any apologies for it because he's like, well, I'm plenty young. I have plenty of time to atone for my sins in my old age. Spoiler alert, most versions end with him going to hell as a young man. But this opera is entitled Don Juan Triumphant. Like, this is basically a breakup album, guys. Like, he... <laughs> This is his Adele 21. Yes. She left him for Raul, and then he disappeared into the sewer for six months. He Taylor Swifted her ass? Yes! <laughs> I love in the middle of all this, Raul runs to fetch the cops. I know. But Madame Giri stops him. Yes! And she's like, mm -mm, mm -mm, no police in my theater. No mm -mm. police in my no theater. No cops at Pride. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no cops at Pride. She takes him away. Wait a minute. Isn't this where the mirror thing happens? Yes, because what happens is Raul goes after him with a sword after the Phantom. Mm -hmm. And the Phantom just drops through a hole in the floor. Yeah. And Raul follows him. And there's like this crypt of mirrors. Like, it looks like we're in a fun house all of a sudden. Like, what else has he built in the walls? <laughs> And, like, Madame Giri just appears out of nowhere and yanks him out of there. Where's the hidden swimming pool? Like, <laughs> She's like, get out of there right now. And she's like, you're not supposed to be in there. 
And so Madame Giri, this is where she explains to Raoul, she's like, since you're so damn concerned about him, I'm going to tell you about him. <laughs> beep, 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 exposition dump. Madame Giri explains to Raoul the origin of the Phantom. Basically, I, I mean, in the, in the book and in the film adaptations and in the stage version, the story, the backstory is basically all the same. The Phantom, uh, his real name is Eric. <laughs> Which that was news to me in French. You know, it's e, it's e r i k, Eric. Eric. Yeah, he was born deformed. Um, he basically was born without a nose. Yeah, and his face was very sunken and almost bonish. Like that's the thing. His actual head is supposed to look like a skull. Yeah, they don't really convey that well. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. In this makeup version. <laughs> but um, he grew up with absolutely no affection. His own mother would run away from him. Oh, that's so sad. And in this version, his mother eventually gives him away to a traveling circus act. Yeah, where they like charge people money to come see the little deformed child in a cage. It's called the devil's child. This is so vile. I know. And basically, when Madame Giri was a child, she witnessed him being tortured and she also witnessed him murder his captor. Yeah, she the, she watches him strangle him. And she basically took him back to the opera house to hide him from the world. Yeah, to hide him from the cops, basically. Yeah. Because the cops like were like, murder? Where? So Madame Jury is the reason that he's living here in the first place. And I love how she's like overwhelmed after telling him all of this. And she's like, he's a genius. He's a, an architect and designer. He's a composer and a magician. A genius, monsieur. But clearly, Madame Giry, genius has turned to madness. Can we just cut ahead a little bit? <laughs> How far ahead do you want to cut? Christine wants to go to the cemetery. Yeah, because she wakes up the next morning and she's like, wow, life is weird. I want to go talk to my dad. Yeah. So she drives off, and since men are ever watchful, Raoul notices. Yeah. And he's like, well, where are you going? Where are you going? <laughs> he gets on a white horse, which that's a little on the nose. Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> I could have done without the rushing after Christine on the white horse in winter in nothing but his shirt. Oh my God, but guys, we've arrived at my favorite number. This takes us into wishing you were somehow here again. This scene is so beautifully shot. It is stunning. This is pro this is my favorite set. Like, it's just an early gray morning in a desolate cemetery. We've got another light snowfall. This is Sorcerer Stone's chessboard shit. I <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, everything is just so big and to scale, and like, she seems so small in this looming graveyard. I love wishing you were somehow here again. This song, I mean, she's visiting her father's crypt. Like, she's she's in a weird spot, folks. She's seeking some guidance because her world's been ripped apart by these two men. One is obviously a good match for her, and the other is a psycho who's mad about being friend-zoned. Like, she could really use a dad right now. Wishing you She's under such mental and emotional duress. 
She doesn't know if this phantom character is actually a ghost or not. She doesn't know if it's her father's influence. She doesn't know if it's just an evil man. Like, but she's so transfixed every time he's around because she just wants something to believe in. Right. And she doesn't have the one person who cared about her in the world. And like you can hear the emotion in Emmy's voice when she sings. This is my favorite Emmy number. I think she does this song very well actually because obviously you know, obviously Sarah Brightman oh my is God. always going to do it better. I love how you could not give Emmy a compliment without mentioning Sarah's name. <laughs> I mean, it's not breathy. It's very straight tone. She does a great job. I, I, you know what my favorite lyric is? What? Why can't the past just die? I feel that in my soul. I do. Why can't the past just die? I just love it. She's like, Papa, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. it's very Barbara. Papa, when I look at these two guys, I realize no one asked me. <laughs> feelings on the subject. Like, it gets, like, real quiet, and then she thinks she's hearing Daddy's voice come out of the crypt. Mm -hmm. What's with the really scary red light inside the crypt? Yeah. He's obviously in there. Also, Gustav Daae must have been just important. I know. He has a nice-ass grave. (laughs) Yeah, his crypt is very ornate. Like, she's just walking towards this light, thinks it's totally normal. It's like when she got sucked into the mirror the first time. Yeah. Like, I just... She just took a dab. (laughs) Don't dab in cemeteries. Anyway. All of a sudden, Raul rides up on his white horse with a sword and... (laughs) Christine, cut that shit out. (laughs) Ho, 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 ho. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, Christine, wait. Wait. Raul. Whatever you believe, this man, this thing, is not your father. And so now we're in a sword fight in the middle of this cemetery between the Phantom and Raul. It, is it the best fight choreography I've ever seen? No, nah, not really. You know it's not. I know. Like a lot of things in this movie, it's good, not great. I love the Phantom Sword. It's got a skull for a hilt. Okay. It's so badass. It's like he's that kid in high school who always has the eyeliner and like he's the Tim Burton kid in high school. The Tim Burton Hot Topic kid? Yes, yes, yes. The scene kid. The scene kid. <laughs> This movie really should have ended here because like Raul gets him pinned and he's about to run him through with the sword and Christine stops him. Need my vocal teacher. <laughs> She's like, don't kill my daddy. Don't, no. Ross, I'm telling you, that's what it is. She has so much attachment to him on the lifelong premise that it was her father's voice teaching her music. Oh, so it's like he's the last thing of her dad. I mean, kind of. Yeah. A little bit. Mm. And like, she, even now, she's still having trouble separating. Well, take up the violin, Christine, okay? <laughs> 
There are other ways to work through trauma. Yeah. They ride off on a horse together, Christine and Raoul, and the Phantom throws his hands up and says, Fine! A pox on all of ya! So, the Opera Populaire hatches a plan to capture the Phantom. We shall play his game, perform his work, but remember we hold the ace. For if Miss Dye sings... He is certain to attend. We are certain the doors are barred. We are certain the police are there. We are certain they're armed. The curtain falls. His reign will end. So yeah, basically they're going to perform Don Juan Triumphant with him and they're going to put him in a corner to where the cops, he'll have nowhere to go. Like, I kind of want to glass over this scene, this next scene where Raul goes and finds Christine in the chapel. Okay, well basically Christine's just like, I'm fucking terrified and I have a right to be. No, he comes down there and this is not what she says, but he comes down there and she looks at him over her shoulder and every time I swear to God she's about to go... Please tell me you are not about to use me as bait. <laughs> She's literally like, Raul, he will take me. He will take me and you will never see me again. And Raul's basically like, it's fine. It's fine. We're going to have cops everywhere. It's 1870. Don't worry about those voices in your head. <laughs> oh, my God. Here's the thing. I have in all capital letters, why not leave? <laughs> Just go somewhere fucking else. He has the V-Comp money. Why don't we just pack a trunk, go to Germany or Austria, where opera is also a big deal, and try to have a career there? If we don't eliminate him, who's to say he won't just, like, kidnap some other ingenue? You know what I mean? Because he hasn't been grooming any other ingenue since they were seven years old. Like, this is, I just, I just hate how much, as an audience, we're expected to feel for him. As a character. Like, I get it. All he wants is some damn compassion. Like, I get it. Yeah, but like, you know, being deformed does not give you license to murder or to feel entitled to women. So we get Don Juan triumphant. I love how the whole performance of Don Juan is literally just those phantom interlude notes. It's the na 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 na. Yeah. Na 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 na. You know? It's like it's like that over and over and over again until we get to the point of no return. Oh, the point of no return. This is usually the image on the posters, right? Yeah. Like when they're together, because like I said, Don Juan was a womanizer and Christine is just dressed up as some woman he's going to womanize, right? Mm -hmm. And they are on stage together. And I love it because for the first part of point of no return, Christine's whole affect is just like, she resents even having to be here. You can practically hear her eyes rolling around in her head. And there comes a point in the song where you can visually see it happen for her, where she drops this whole annoyed affect and she's kind of into it. Yeah. Yeah. She's, it's basically, she's like, all right. I'll play your game. <laughs> She's like, I'm going to fuck back. And like, oh, man, that's accurate, though. Yeah. You're absolutely right. She's like, I've been a pillow princess this whole time. I'm fucking back. Like, even though we know as an audience that he is just absolutely toxic and he views her as a possession, but no one else but you can have me, we know he's bad news, but their passionate chemistry is a lot. She's, re she's realizing that she does have a degree of power over the 
at the end of the song, Raul is off stage watching them embrace with these final notes, tears in his eyes. He's like, it looks a little too real, guys. <laughs> there is some fucked up Freudian bullshit happening out there under the hot lights, and he can't take it. Like at, like on Mad Men when Don needs to be with Megan at work. Oh, my God. On set. Shit. <laughs> to make sure she doesn't, you know, kiss anybody with too much passion. Christine is in front of the Phantom as they're singing these last notes, and he's practically singing them into her cleavage. <laughs> and th- Sing to my boobies. <laughs> and then the song is over. Uh, this is this is the big moment. Oh, yeah, here we go. This is the big moment. I just love how sincere she looks looking into his eyes. And right before he can belt out that nice last note, she just rips the mask off, and there it is. It's the terror, the holy terror that is his face. It's not. Can we calm down? Like, Lon Chaney was scarier in the 20s. Yeah. Like, it's just, his, it kind and of... And that was his whole head. Exactly. Yeah, this is just part of his head. Like, this half of his face that's covered by the mask just kind of looks like he's suffered some burn damage. Yeah, it's like he got, it's like he got acid thrown on him or yeah, something. And it's just like, guys, can we just take a breath, calm down? But, the, but everyone in France is clutching their pearls at the sight. Oh, my God. And just the music gets all sinister... We're going into a uh, down once more. So he's fucked. He looks out. He sees the cops starting to run up, right? <laughs> yeah. So he grabs Christine, cuts a rope, and then they just drop. They drop all the way through the set and under the stage. They're just gone. Bam, <laughs> boom, gone. And they had one job. They had one job, and that was to make sure he didn't kidnap her. We get shots of all the rigging breaking apart, and then the chandelier starts to come down. Uh, In the book, when the chandelier comes down, so many people die. Oh, well, I would imagine (laughs) it's literally over them. In the stage show, if you happen to be sitting under the chandelier... Which I was. You think for all of two seconds that you're about to die. It came down right in front of us, because we were right at the front of the mezzanine. And it comes down so fast oh my god <laughs> but like this is this is nice and fluid this chandelier coming down in the film it crashes into the stage into the orchestra pit bye bye orchestra players oh god <laughs> all those people bye bye band leaders and that's what sets everything on fire right yeah, yeah. the whole opera pop the fire expands to all parts of the building very quickly and you know what the fire's real they really did burn that shit down they did yeah they did you just mean the set the interior yeah no, they did not go to this really old building and burn it down. Well, the building's not real. I know that. Like, <laughs> the Phantom starts a whole ass fire, and you're right. This is where we get down once more to the dungeons of my black despair. Down we plunge to the prison of my mind. Down that path into darkness deep as jerking her back down into his lair he's kind of getting it all out you know what I'm saying Mm -hmm. like don't you think it's bullshit that the only reason I'm ostracized is because of my face and like to be honest yeah that is bullshit he just wants compassion and he asked Christine why why did you do that (laughs) 
Now everyone really knows what I look like. I feel like he's not seeing the forest through the trees here. Mm-hmm. Like, he's already been terrorizing this opera house for decades. Like, it's not like people were going to see his face or not see his face and suddenly decide he was a nice guy. You know what I'm saying? I love how Raul, meanwhile, is running around backstage like, well, exactly what Christine said would happen happened. I love Madame Giri. Come with me, monsieur. <laughs> Come with me, monsieur. But remember, keep your hand at the level of your eye. So he can't strangle you. Exactly. They want you to do that so that if you get a noose around your neck, you won't hang. Exactly. And so like, she's showing him the entrance to the catacombs. And like, she's like all people in that situation. She's like, this is as far as I go. She took him halfway down and she went, fuck's that. <laughs> <laughs> fuck's that right in the ass. Not doing it. I wrote, the Phantom really is a fuckboy. He is! <laughs> I'm so sorry, but he just, he's mad that he's in the friend zone. Now we're he, talking about forced marriage and... He feels entitled to her for no other reason than that she never saw his face and, like, loved him, kind of. Basically, this this whole ending sequence goes on for way too long. Basically, you know, Raul gets down there, gets trapped for a second, survives, almost drowns. And then the phantom gets a hold of him and is, ties him up to the gate. It's a portcullis. I learned a new word today. Ooh, a <laughs> yeah. portcullis. Yeah, when you've got like a big gate thing that rises and lowers in front of a door, that's oh, a portcullis. okay, okay. <laughs> and the phantom basically gets him all tied up in strangle formation and goes, okay, choose. You choose him, he dies. You choose me, he goes free. Start a new life with me. Buy his freedom with your love. Refuse me and you send your lover to his death. This is the choice. This is the point of no return. And I love how she basically just gets over her shit in that moment and goes, this is insane. (laughs) And she goes, angel of music. I gave my mind blindly to you. You're nobody. You're not a ghost. You're literally just a sad man down here in all your sadness. Like, all the voices are overlapping each other. Like, Raul's pleading with Christine to just let him kill him. Mm -hmm. And, like, Christine's like, please don't. And the phantom, oh, the phantom. a rock and a scarred place. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) She goes up to the phantom and like you said, she knows that she has some level of power over him. This is my favorite line. start kissing and the fanfare. Oh. oh my god. No, I think this is where everyone in the audience's asshole just loosens. You know what I mean? Like the noise you made just now. No, this is where everyone in the audience just unclenches their asshole. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, thank god. She finally kissed him? She finally just kissed him. Like, we got that out of the way. Like, she, it's, they kiss twice, really. Yeah. She goes back in for more. And guys, I guess that's all he needed. 
Because he lets the whole thing go immediately. Like, I don't know what's going on in his head at this point. Like, is it that she kissed him and he realized how beautiful it was, but then he also realized that she's literally doing it under duress? Someone showed him affection for the first time in a quarter of a century. I think is what it is. And that just broke him. Yeah, he was just like, I never... I think what's happening behind his eyes in that moment is, I never thought you'd actually do it. Right. I never thought we would ever get to a place where you would willingly show me affection. You're right. He, in that moment, he basically tells them, he's like, take your man candy and get out. Yeah, he's like, leave. Forget all this. And she's like, oh, thank you. And then runs after to untie Raul. But like, she doesn't leave right away. I know. She goes back to the Phantom. Well, because we hear above them, drag out this murderer. Oh yeah, the mob is- He must be found. Like the mob is coming to get him. Like, kill the beast. Yeah. Kill the beast. Yes. She goes back to the Phantom before her and Raul escape. And she takes Raul's engagement ring- off her finger. Can okay, we... guys, we don't really know what's happening with the ring. Like, she gives him a ring. I think it's the ring that Raul gave her. Why would she do that? That's a dick move. <laughs> because, like, in the book, he gives her a gold... The, the Phantom gives Christine a gold ring. Right. Like, this is our ring. And then at the end, when the... Sorry, spoiler alert, if you don't want to read the book. The Phantom dies at the end of La Phantom de la Opera. And what he makes Christine promise to return the ring... And to make news of his death known to the general public. Okay. So yeah, yeah, that's just weird. I don't know, but mm-hmm. it's like, here, you're never going to see me again. Here's a token of the man that I am leaving you for. It's just so sad. Like, I, this is where I actually feel Gerard Butler putting character into this. I like, know, it only took him just, two and a half hours. Just the pained look on his face is so good. I know. You know what I mean? Like, I was just like, he's just like, God, I came so close to everything I ever wanted and now I just don't know what to do. And he's just staring at that music box and the music box, it's the music box from the beginning. Yeah. That's bought in the auction. Yeah. And it's playing the masquerade theme. Oh, And he's singing it under his breath. You know what I mean? Yeah, like Christine and Raul escape in the gondola and he just starts smashing up all his own shit. mob comes for him he's gone also i love that we're led to believe that meg is leading the mob (laughs) yeah she's i love the way she's dressed when she comes down there i'm like oh i'll take orders from you (laughs) she's just like in a white tunic and like breeches sorry i'm not fetishizing meg i'm caught in a place where i'm like i don't feel that bad for him but i can also empathize this is where i wrote the moral must be you cannot just kidnap someone into loving you no matter how hard it is to get someone organically. Exactly. <laughs> and, and you know, it does kind of sound like you're making a joke, but I also do kind of agree because the passion that is behind the music and the characters in this project, mm-hmm. like it's so fierce. And like, I think it's, that's why I kind of wanted to do this for Love Story Month because like the feeling is so there, mm-hmm. but it's not 
not meant to be. She loves someone else. It's over now. Yeah. The music of the night. The music of the night. (laughs) You have to let it go. If you love them, let them go. And like, I love how we get this little epilogue. We, We flash back to 1919, old Raul in his music box that he's won at the auction. They go to the cemetery where Christine is buried. She has a very lovely marker. It says Comtesse de Chagny on it. She was a Comtesse for the rest of her life. It also uh, says beloved wife and mother. Yes, that's the more important part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> beloved wife and mother. And Raoul leaves that music box at her grave. And um, what's on the grave, Carrie? A single red rose tied with a black ribbon and that engagement ring around it. He's like, damn, I ain't seen that shit in 50 years. What's going on? (laughs) The Phantom is still alive and visited her grave when she died. I guess. Because apparently she's only been dead for like two years. Yeah. At this point. I think it says 1917 is when she died on the grave. Like, do you think the Phantom is like down there, like hanging out still? Or do you think he escaped and is like living among them? Probably sleeps in Gustav's crypt. Oh, God. (laughs) I'm kidding, Uh, no. Like, he obviously had to leave the opera house to put the rose on the grave. It's just like, I want to know where he is. I want to know what happened to him. I love in this grainy black and white film, just like the red of the rose is the only thing that comes through. Oh, I love it. Anyway, guys, that's it. We did La Phantom de la Opera. Oh, my God. That was a ride. Guys, listen. Love the production. Love all of that. It's perfect to the T. Where are the proper vocalists? That's my only... That's my only... Problem. We could have had Anne Hathaway. You know that we love a film adaptation of an Andrew Lloyd Webber subject. Oh my god. So like you know that we love the taped versions of Joseph and Cats. Yes. And then you get this adaptation of Phantom. It's like, okay, it's a little less good. (laughs) And then we got Cats. Two years ago. Yes, we did. Which, can you believe that? I think it was our 2020 High from Hiatus where we just ripped Cats because we went to see it. Yes, yes, In December. Yes, yes. Andrew, how did you let that happen, buddy? <laughs> Were you on vacation? <laughs> like, this was not a botched adaptation. They did medium good. Medium good. <laughs> I agree. Like, I watch this over and over again, more so because, you know, it's just one of them movies from childhood mm-hmm. that I return to in, in times where I need comfort. I think Emmy Rossum does great. I, I think that considering what she's up against, how inexperienced she is, I think she does a fine job. Good, not great. You know what I'm saying? Like, of course she's not Sarah Brightman. Sarah Brightman is an actual freak of nature. Okay? <laughs> like, and I mean that as the highest compliment. A freak of nature? With the whistle register. Oh, no, honey, no, no, no. She's not a freak. She's an angel. Oh, okay. (laughs) Tomato, tomato. (laughs) But, like, you know, I think think it was fine. I think it was fine. Gerard Butler's face, at least the left half of it, makes up for more than enough what he lacks in vocals. Guys, it's just a great story. I love this score! (laughs) Oh, my God. I I can't get enough of it. I really can't. And it's just this, I think, Andrew Lloyd Webber, I almost don't think he realized what he was doing. Right? Like, I feel like he was like, oh, you know, maybe, you know, this will attract, you know, a minimal, more refined crowd. You know, like, it'll be good for what it is while it runs. 
bitch, it's been 33 years. Right? It's been 34 since it first premiered. Like, like even Money says that this will still be running by the time Andrew Lloyd Webber is no longer with us. And this show beat out another longest-running Broadway show. You know what it was? Tell me. Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats. Holy guacamole! Andrew Lloyd Webber has the two longest-running stage shows in history. Boy, I bet that creates a lot of jealousy among composers. And Phantom is the production that made him a knight of the Order of the British Empire. Oh my god! He is Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber. Is Andrew Lloyd Webber the James Cameron of the stage? Because James Cameron has the like the two highest grossing movies. I think of you're all right. Time. I think you're right there. <laughs> it's so funny because kind of like how Norman Lear is the Andrew Lloyd Webber and James Cameron of television. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was and fun. Quincy Jones is that of the gra- of music. <laughs> As you were saying that you agree with me, your eye was like twitching. You're like, oh man, I hate that I agree. It's with because you. Jim Cameron's a cock, <laughs> and I didn't want to agree. But you're right. Great job there, Andrew. Great job. You're in good company. guys uh, continuing on with our trope of different kinds of love stories you know we got to get a rom-com in there buddy <sighs> I, I i know that you don't like them i think have you ever seen this next film that we're coming up with i haven't so it'll be another first for me oh god just like adjustment bureau you are gonna enjoy this one i think lay it on me guys next week we will be covering the classic 1997 rom-com my best friend's wedding Julia? Julia Roberts. Oh, great. I get to watch her fake it for an hour and a half. <laughs> Guys, you know how it's like, if it if it's Christmas, it's Tim Allen. If it's Valentine's Day, it's Julia Roberts. I guess so. Like, what the hell? Think about how many rom-coms Julia Roberts is in. But anyway, so in the meantime, you can go follow us on Twitter at Kick and Stream. K-I-C-K-N. S-T-R-E-A-M. You can write the show at kickingandstreamingpodcast at gmail.com. That's with an and and not an ampersand. Remember, folks, be practicing the three R's. Rate, review, retweet. Rate, review, and retweet. (laughs) We want everyone to join this watch party. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) More quality content coming to you from Kicking and Streaming. Until then, I'm Carrie. I'm Ross. And as always, sorry, Sorry, Mom. Mom.